from Astoria to the Rockaways, it's time for the Queen's New Yorker. And here is the man giving you all the info, your uber snazzy and jazzy host, Mr. Jason DeCanio! so much. Thank you. Oh, what a group. I love it. And we welcome you to another edition of the Queens New Yorker. I'm Jason Canio, your gracious host on this Saturday, April 3rd, 2021. It's one day before Easter Sunday, so we're celebrating Easter weekend here on the show with episode number 176 of your favorite series. This is part three of our series since we're in spring training. And unfortunately, we have uh, pretty much <laughs> some sad news to tell you. But we're, fin- we're going now with part three of the history of the New York Mets. Yes. All right. Our team, the New York Mets, is with us in the history. All right. Oh, yeah. So with that, with the history of our great New York team, unfortunately, they're going to be starting their home opener, not even their opener, not even opening day. The the whole series with the Washington Nationals got canceled this whole weekend, so now they got to go to Philadelphia to start game their first game against the Phillies in that three-game series. Hopefully, that's going to be a series at least they'll get to play in. For right now, I don't know how they're going to make up the Washington series, but hopefully everybody on the Washington Nationals is doing well and we're going to have a fast recovery from the COVID-19 situation. Okay, so uh, with that in mind, let's go right to part three of our program here, which is now taking us into 1980 to 84, where a lot of good things have happened. This is like the high point of... The high point of the Mets in their history. So in January of 1980, the Payson Heirs sold the Mets franchise to the Doubleday Publishing Company for $21.1 million, which is a record amount at the time. Nelson Doubleday Jr. was named chairman of the board, while minority shareholder Fred Wilpon took the role of club president. In February, Wilpon hired longtime Baltimore Orioles executive Frank Cashin as general manager, who began the process of rebuilding the Mets much in the same way he developed the Orioles in the late 60s and early 70s. Cashin's positive impact on the organization took some time to be felt at the major league level. He began by selecting slugging high school phenomenon Daryl Strawberry as the number one overall pick in the 1980 amateur draft. Two years later, hard-throwing hurler Dwight Gooden was taken as the fifth overall selection in the 82 draft. 
The pair rose quickly through the minors, winning consecutive Rookie of the Year awards, Strawberry in 83 and Gooden in 84. Cashin's midseason 1983 trade for former, former MVP Keith Hernandez from the Cardinals helped spark the Mets' return to competitive contention. After finishing their first three campaigns of the 1980s decade in either fifth or sixth last place, in 1984, new manager Davey Johnson was promoted from the helm of the AAA Tidewater Tides. He led the Mets to a second-place 90-72 record, their first winning season since 1976. Now, in 1985, the Mets acquired catcher Gary Carter from the Montreal Expos and won 98 games, but lost the division title to the St. Louis Cardinals in the final days of the season in a memorable series. The Mets began the series three games behind St. Louis and won the first two, but faltered in the third game, allowing St. Louis to remain in first place and clinch the division. Now, before the 1986 season, Doubleday sold his publishing company to the then West German multinational corporation Boltzmann AG and used the proceeds from the sale to buy the Mets in his own name for $81 million. He then sold a half stake to Wilpon, making them equal partners in the team. Unlike the league champion Mets of 69 or 73, the 1986 Mets hit the ground running, breaking away from the rest of the division early and dominating throughout the entire year. They won 20 of their first 24 games, clinched the East Division title on September 17th, and finished the year 108-54, which tied with the 1975 Cincinnati Reds for the third highest win total in National League history. Behind the 1906 Chicago Cubs, which had 116, and the 1909 Pittsburgh Pirates at 110. The relative lack of excitement during the regular season was more than compensated for by the spectacularly suspenseful and dramatic postseason series. In the National League Championship Series, the Mets faced their fellow 1962 expansion team, the Houston Astros. And unlike the Mets, the Astros had yet to win a pennant but had former Mets pitchers Mike Scott, the league's Cy Young Award winner, and fireballer Nolan Ryan leading their pitching staff. The Mets took a two-games-to-one lead with a come-from-behind walk-off home run by Lenny Dykstra, and in Game 6, the Mets turned a 3-0 ninth-inning deficit into a 16-inning marathon victory to clinch the National League pennant and earned their third World Series appearance. The Astros would have to wait until 2005 to finally win their first pennant. In the World Series against the Boston Red Sox, the Mets, the Mets faced elimination leading into Game 6. The Red Sox scored two runs in the 10th inning and twice came within one strike of winning their first World Series since 1918. However, the Mets, Mets rallied and would come back in typical amazing Mets fashion as the game became one of the most famous games in baseball history as the curse of the Bambino appeared to be alive and well. In fact, it was in this series that talk of this curse began. With two outs and down two runs, three consecutive singles brought the Mets within 90 feet of nodding the score. Hitter Mookie Wilson ran the count to 2-1, to one, then fouled off three consecutive pitches. With a count 2-2, two to two, pitcher Bob Stanley threw a wild pitch that Wilson had to leap out of the way of, and Boston catcher 
Rich Gedman made a wild stab for the ball, but it went to the backstop. Pinch hitter Kevin Mitchell scored from third base, tying the game. Now facing a full count, Wilson fouled off two more pitches. On NBC, Vince Scully then came, then called a play that would quickly become an iconic one to baseball fans with the normally calm Scully growing increasingly excited. So the winning run is at second base with two outs, three and two to Mookie Wilson. A little roller up along first base behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Well, Scully then remained silent for more than three minutes, letting the pictures and the crowd noise tell the story. Scully resumed with, If one picture is worth a thousand words, you have seen about a million words. But more than that, you have seen an absolutely bizarre finish to Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. The Mets are not only alive, they are well, and they will play the Red Sox in Game 7 tomorrow. <laughs> the Mets went on to win their second World Series title by taking Game 7, also in dramatic fashion, overcoming a three-run deficit while scoring a total of eight runs during the final three innings. The final score was 8-5 to five with Mets pitcher Jesse Orozco ending the game by striking out Marty Barrett. Orozco then knew, threw his glove high in the air and dropped to his knees while catcher Gary Carter ran to the mound to embrace him. This scene was captured on film and would become an iconic image taken by Mets photographer George Kalinske in Mets baseball history and in all of baseball. The Mets remain the only team to come within one strike of losing a World Series before recovering to become world champions until the St. Louis Cardinals did it in 2011. The Mets winning this World Series is the highest-rated single World Series game to date. The Mets were also the first team to win a World Series in a potential clinching game delayed by rain as Game 7 was postponed by one day. And while the 1986 Mets were undeniably strong, they also gained infamy for the off-the-field controversy both Strawberry and Gooden were youngsters who wound up burning out long before their time because of various substance abuse and personal problems. Hernandez's cocaine abuse was the subject of persistent rumors even before he joined the Mets, but he publicly acknowledged his addiction in 1985 and made a successful recovery. Lenny Dykstra's reputation was recently tainted by allegations of steroid use and gambling problems. Instead of putting together a winning dynasty, the problems caused the Mets to soon fall apart. And despite Daryl Strawberry's numerous off-the-field mishaps, he remains the Mets' all-time leader in home runs and runs batted in. The World Series championship by the Mets had a strange twist. Lou Gorman, the general manager of the Red Sox, was vice president, player personnel of the Mets from 1980 to 1983 working under Mets general manager Frank Cashin, with whom Gorman served with the Orioles. He helped lay the foundation for the Mets championship. And after winning the World Series in 1986, the Mets declined to re-sign World Series MVP Ray Knight, who then signed with the Baltimore Orioles. They also traded the flexible Kevin Mitchell to the Padres for long ball threat Kevin McReynolds. Perhaps the greatest shock since the Midnight Massacre of 1977 was when 
Mets ace Dwight Gooden was admitted to a drug clinic after testing positive for cocaine. But after struggling in the first few months of the 87 season, Dr. K rebounded, as did the team. And it was during the tough times that the Mets made a great long-term deal, trading Ed Hearn to the Kansas City Royals for pitcher David Cohn. They would surge to battle St. Louis for the division title. They would suffer two painful losses to the Cardinals. The first came on seat cushion night where Tom Herr hit a walk-off grand slam. A greater loss came on September 11th in the game against St. Louis. Third baseman Terry Pendleton hit a homer to give the Cardinals a lead and eventually the NL East title. One highlight of the year was, was Daryl Strawberry and Howard Johnson becoming the first teammates ever to hit 30 homers and steal 30 bases in the same season. After missing the playoffs in 1987, the 88 Mets again won the division. And thanks to some stellar pitching from Gooden, Ron Darling, and David Cohn, as well as offense from McReynolds, Strawberry, and Howard Johnson, the Mets won 100 games for the second time in three campaigns to date. 1988 is also the last time they have finished with that many wins. Now, in addition, Strawberry and McReynolds both lost the MVP to Kirk Gibson as they finished second and third in the voting, respectively. And despite this, however, the clubhouse was distracted by the presence of a young Greg Jeffries who was just called up. The veteran players took a dislike to Jeffries, who had a habit of excessive bragging, prompting his teammates to saw his custom-made bats in half as a form of hazing. The Mets played the Los Angeles Dodgers in the 1988 National League Championship Series in a season where they beat them 10 out of 11 times, but led by Oral Hersizer, the Dodgers continued their Cinderella story season by beating the Mets in seven games. The 1989 Mets began with a slow start thanks to an infamous pitcher, picture day brawl between Daryl Strawberry and Keith Hernandez, apparently because Hernandez told reporters that Kevin McReynolds should win the 1988 NL MVP over Strawberry, although Los Angeles' Kirk Gibson would beat both Mets for the award. While eventually the Mets, as well as the Montreal Expos, would battle the Cubs for the division title in 1989, but Chicago would prevail despite a career year by Howard Johnson and a deadline train with Minnesota for 1988 AL Cy Young, Young winner Frank Viola. Those high points were tempered by injuries to Gooden, Hernandez, and Carter, as well as an ill-fated trade that sent Dykstra and Roger McDowell to Philadelphia in exchange for Juan Samuel. Now, after the season, Samuel, who hit 235 that season, would be traded to the Dodgers for Mike Marshall, who would hit 239 in 53 games for the Mets before being traded to Boston. Dykstra, however, would become an all-star in Philadelphia and help lead his team to a pennant in 1993. That offseason... The Mets had a mix of triumph and tragedy. They would receive all-star closer and native New Yorker John Franco in a trade with the Cincinnati Reds, and Strawberry in legal trouble as well would check into an alcohol rehabilitation center and miss the start of the season. They would also lose key veterans Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez as they left for the Giants and Indians in free agency, respectively. The next season, the Mets would... Surge again to battle the Pittsburgh Pirates by September 3rd, had a 77-55 and record, a half-game lead, 
but Pittsburgh's BB guns, which included Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Jay Bell, and now former Met Wally Backman, led the Pirates to their first NLCS since 1979. In that campaign, General Manager Frank Cashin fired Johnson from his managerial job and replaced him with former shortstop Bud Harrelson. Although he led the team to a good finish in 90, Strawberry's last with the Mets, as he went on to sign with the Dodgers in the offseason, the Mets fell to fifth place in 1991. Before the 91 season, the Mets had signed Vince Coleman to a $2 million contract after failing to sign defending battling champion Willie McGee, who went to San Francisco. This was the first of what would lead to many bad free agent signings and trades that would doom the Mets during the mid-90s. And we will stop there and pick up with a continuation of Part 4 on Tuesday with our New York Mets. Like all teams, we have all had our highs and lows, as they say, and that's the important thing about learning about why baseball has had such a great history, no matter the team who plays the game. So, coming this Tuesday on April 5th, we will have part four, where we'll look at 1991 to 1993, the worst team money could buy. And that's unfortunate because, yeah, they had some pretty doubts in the early 90s, but picked it up towards the late 90s. We'll look at all of that on episode number 177. Well, I got some sweats and small stuff uh, quotes for you today, including ones from yesterday. This is from Friday, April 2nd. It says, when we expect to see things differently, we, when we take it as a given that others will do things differently and react differently, to the same stimuli, the compassion we have for ourselves and for others rises dramatically. And today's sweating of the small stuff for Saturday, April 3rd, goes like this. Consider deeply and respect the fact that we are all very different. When you do, the love you feel for others, as well as the appreciation you have for your own uniqueness, will increase. And that's a very, very good quote of not sweating the small stuff. We will see you tomorrow. Don't forget tomorrow, the legacy of Queens. We will be looking at our next in that series of people coming up on that series. We're going to be, whoops, I'm, oh, my God, I'm pressing the wrong buttons here. Come on, close. The next person up on our list is going to be Shamika Holesclaw, native New Yorker who went to Christ the King High School Played for the Women's National Basketball Association under contract with the San Antonio Silver Stars, but her had her highlight when she went to the University of Tennessee and won championships for Coach Pat, the, the late Coach Pat Summit. We'll look at her life tomorrow on episode 20 of The Legacy of Queens. I'm Jason DeCanio. Hope you have a great rest of the Easter weekend. Have a great Easter Sunday. We'll see you back here on Tuesday 
for another look at part four of the history of the New York Mets. Till then, be honest, be real, and keep it simple, stupid. Kiss. Have a great, happy Easter. Bye for now. You have been watching The Queen's New Yorker. This is Jason Kelly on a Jason DeCanio internet presentation. Thank you for your support. Thank you.